Welcome to Hyper Parry Exchange. My name is Vivian Parry, I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I've got a special interest in rare disease. This is the fourth in the Hyper Parry Exchange podcast series. What we're aiming to do is help patients with the rare endocrine disease, hypoparathyroidism, and the endocrinologists that care for them. Understand the key issues and challenges of the disease from each other's point of view. In the first of our series, we took a detailed look at hyperpara and its impact. The second covered quality of life issues, particularly emotional ones. And in the third, we concentrated on changes in symptoms throughout the day and had our patients coped. All these podcasts are still available on your favourite podcast platforms, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple and Google. Just search for Hyperpara Exchange. But you can also find it on Rare to Aware, for reasons that I hope are about to become clear. That's because in this fourth episode, we're going to hear about the journey to diagnosis for one of the rarest forms of hyperpara. And yes, our regular listeners now know the form about that same journey from the doctor's perspective. Now, here comes the disclaimer. This podcast was produced and funded by Takeda and is available to the public for information purposes only. It should not be used for diagnosis or treating health problems or disease. It's not intended to substitute for consultation with a healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare provider for further advice. The impact of the symptoms of hyperpower described in this podcast are based on a single person's experience and perspective of living with a condition described in their own words. Not all people living with a condition will experience the same symptoms. Now, there's a good reason why we've brought one of the rarest forms of hyperpower to you in this episode. It's to coincide with Rare Disease Day 2020. These annual days are when the whole rare disease community right across the globe unite to raise awareness about rare diseases and the impact they have on those who live with them. This year, the theme is Reframe Rare, trying to get people to think differently about what rare means. A common misconception is that rare diseases affect very few people. Yes, They affect less than 5 per 100,000 people. That's the definition of a rare disease. But because there are at least 5,000 and perhaps as many as 8,000 rare diseases, most of them with a genetic basis, they are collectively common. A very rough estimate would be that one out of 15 people worldwide could be affected by a rare, or sometimes called an orphan, disease. That's 400 million people worldwide. Hyperparathyroidism is a rare disease but there are genetic forms of it that are ultra-rare. And to find out more, I'm delighted to introduce Connor, a patient living with hyperparathyroidism, and expert Professor Karen Amrein at the University Hospital of Graz in Austria. Hello to you both. Let me start with Professor Amrein. We're now in our fourth podcast. We know what uh, hyperpar is, but just remind us about its chief symptoms and just tell us a bit about how rare it is. Yes, so hypoparathyroidism is certainly one of the rarer endocrine diseases. It's a hormone deficiency syndrome where parathyroid hormone is lacking or is uh, produced in in lower quantities. So what results is hypocalcemia and often hyperphosphatemia. And there are different forms of hypoparathyroidism. There is post-surgical hypoparathyroidism 
where the reason for hypoparathyroidism is removal or damage to all or several of the four parathyroid glands during or after neck surgery, typically thyroid surgery, which is approximately 75% of all hypopara cases. And that's opposed to non-surgical hypoparathyroidism, which is about 25% of the cases, which includes a number of diseases. And I'm sure we will come to see a lot more new diseases when we do more genetic testing in the future. And it's a whole group of rare diseases. Lots of them are genetic. And I'm guessing that since we're now advancing into whole genome sequencing much more, that actually we're going to find even more uh, new genetic causes of hyperparathyroidism soon. Exactly. So there's currently the term of idiopathic hypoparathyroidism, which means we don't know why hypoparathyroidism developed. As you mentioned, I'm sure we will find the reason for many of these diseases in the future. Are there different ages at which these two types of hyperparathyroidism start? Yes. So generally, of course, non-surgical hyperparathyroidism is often a genetic disease and may occur in early childhood. Even as a, a baby, it may occur, but it may also occur at later early adulthood, as opposed to post-surgical hypoparathyroidism, where it certainly directly coincides with surgery and therefore is made or is diagnosed as a much later stage in life. How did you yourself come across hyperpara, first of all? Um, was it rare for you? Yes, of course, it was also rare for me, but it was interesting to me. So it's a uh, there is also the opposite. There is hyperparathyroidism, which is one of the more frequent endocrine diseases. And as an endocrinologist, there's usually two types of diseases if you have too much or too little of a hormone. And I always found hypoparathyroidism intriguing. And of course, it's rare. But if you look hard, it's not as rare as you would think. Not as rare as you would think for an endocrinologist. But for most doctors they will probably only ever see one case in their whole lifetime if they're in a general practice. Yes, and that's, of course, a problem because, um, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> so very, you don't it's, have the experience. So now, a perfect segue into uh, our guest, Connor. Now, Connor lives with a non-surgical form of hyperpara. Connor, what's it like to live with a rare disease? It definitely has its, its difficult points, but um, because I was diagnosed at such a young age, um, I don't really have anything else to compare it to. So you, you learn to adapt quite quickly. So what's it like when you're out with your mates trying to explain this very rare disease? I mean, would it be easier if you had something that was much more common, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it would definitely be easier if I had a commoner disease. I think trying to get my friends and colleagues to understand my condition is one of the most challenging aspects of living with Hypopara. I, I usually try to break it down and say that I'm deficient in a vital hormone that normal people would have. And because of that, I have to take supplements every day. And sometimes that doesn't work. I have to go to hospital. And they probably still don't understand. No. <laughs> <laughs> Rare disease diagnosis is often delayed by years. A primary factor for this delay is a lack of knowledge and awareness regarding rare diseases. To be more specific, the length of time from symptom onset to an accurate diagnosis is around 4.8 years for a rare disease. The longer it takes to diagnose a rare disease, the more physicians the patient needs to see. Patients see an average of 7.3 physicians before a diagnosis is made. Professor Amran, do you see lengthy diagnosis timelines associated with hyperpara? 
Yes, this is a big issue, of course. Um, so it depends a lot if calcium testing has been done early on or not. So if that is done, um, even then, sometimes a low calcium level can be overlooked or can be, you know, interpreted as a lab problem. Um, but if calcium is not tested, and that was the case years ago, decades ago, calcium was usually not tested. So that has, I think, sped up things a little bit, but still it's a long, long journey for patients to get a proper diagnosis. Now, Connor was diagnosed as a child, but not all of these things, these genetic uh, forms are paediatric in onset. They can suddenly appear in adulthood and there's no surgery. So are they those particularly difficult cases to diagnose? Yes, exactly. Because if you have a patient with thyroid surgery and you have a 1 in 20 chance to develop hypoparathyroidism, you know very well how where to look. And uh, if a patient comes in with unspecific symptoms and maybe you haven't even done a calcium test, it's very hard to proceed with a correct diagnosis. But of course, it's important. Does it ever get confused with other conditions that have similar kind of symptoms? Yes, it does. Because hypoparathyroidism, I usually in my talks uh, show a chameleon because it can mimic all kinds of other diseases and depending on the patient, depending on the calcium levels, um, it can cause different symptoms in every patient and it can affect almost any organ system. So it's the typical hypocalcemic symptoms that we see with tetany and seizures and muscle cramping. That's easy, but there are also unspecific symptoms, especially in patients with long-standing hypocalcemia, which can be heart failure, which can be also brain fog or or concentration difficulties. And often, as in other diseases, um, patients do get a notion that they might have a psychiatric problem before a proper diagnosis is made. So does that mean sometimes people get put in that, I don't know what this is, it could be psychiatric box? Absolutely, yes. So there are two issues to this. So for once, yes. So some patients, unfortunately, do have the experience that um, because nothing was found in the first rounds of, of uh, trying to find out what is wrong, there was nothing found because calcium was not tested or sometimes even more unfortunate calcium levels were low and were overlooked or contributed to lab errors and not tested again. So sometimes patients are seen as you know, psychosomatic. But on the other hand, uh, neuropsychiatric manifestations of hypoparathyroidism are very often seen. So there are depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms are very common in hypoparathyroidism patients. Again, because I think calcium is so important also for the brain. What's the first thing that happens once somebody's diagnosed with hyperpara? So the first thing in severe symptoms and hypocalcemia is to correct hypocalcemia with either intravenous and or oral supplements of calcium. Moreover, we need active and also native vitamin D to manage a long-term stable situation biochemically. Moreover, I think it's also important to inform patients about their disease and give them as much possible information to be informed and cope with their daily life. You mentioned native vitamin D, Professor Amran. What's native vitamin D? So native vitamin D is basically the precursor vitamin D that has a much longer half-life of about two to three weeks, which is vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol are also names for it. Um, there's also vitamin D2 or ergocalciferol, which needs to be given only once a day or once weekly, as opposed to active vitamin D, which 
is also different metabolites such as calcitriol or alpha-calcidol, which usually need to be given multiple times daily because of the much shorter half-life of only a few hours. In the first few months following the diagnosis, I mean, for which I imagine that a lot of people are very grateful to have last got a diagnosis, how do they cope with living with their hyperpara? So I think um, after trying to make a, a proper diagnosis as accurate as possible and trying to find the true reason, it's very important also to have a good management of hyperparathyroidism. So to get the right medications, to get enough calcium, enough active vitamin D, because as you may know, hypoparathyroidism, although the name indicates that it's only parathyroid hormone that is missing, is a two-hormone deficiency. So it's also 125 vitamin D, so active vitamin D that's missing because parathyroid hormone is involved in the activation of native to active vitamin D. And this we can supplement. We have been giving active vitamin D for a long time so it's finding a balance to get a good treatment and then there's still the coping the just your life is changed forever you have a, a diagnosis and a disease that you will never get rid of and it's I think very important to get the most information you can during this time. Because it's a rare condition people aren't likely to have amongst their own circle of friends and relatives people who've also got the condition so they have to reach out a real distance in order to find other people like them. What support for newly diagnosed patients is provided in that sense? So currently, unfortunately, in most centres, I'm afraid there is no formal support. I usually advise all my patients to go and look for patient support groups. So Parathyroid UK is a very good example for a very active patient help group. Unfortunately, in many countries in Austria, there is no active self-help group. As nowadays, it's much easier with this podcast, with the internet, it's much easier to find similar patients and to not feel so alone. How about the emotional side? Because we think of primarily the physical symptoms, but of course it's the emotional side. So I think that's also two um, issues there because brain function is highly dependent also on calcium. So every cell type uses calcium for proper function, including the brain, and the brain is particularly vulnerable. So there is a physical component, we just cannot measure it currently, but we know that calcium levels are very important for brain function and also cognitive function, psychological well-being, etc. And uh, we very well know that neurocognitive symptoms and also psychiatric symptoms, anxiety disorders, are disproportionately more frequent in hypoparathyroidism patients. And it, I think it does have a true physiological reason. Uh, we, are just, we, we don't have sophisticated methods to measure this currently. We will have at some point, but currently not. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there is the other side of, of having a life-changing event and having to cope with something that will never go away again. So, Connor, let's come back to you now. Tell us about your experience of being diagnosed with this non-surgical form of hyperparathyroidism. So, when I was three years old, I had a child mender because both my parents would have worked full-time. Uh, one day, I was playing in the back garden with the child mender's daughter and fell to the ground and started shaking, and they quickly realised I was having a seizure. Uh, they called the ambulance and... After a long month in the hospital, I was diagnosed with a genetic form of hypoparathyroidism. I'm guessing you didn't really know much about it at the time, but for your parents, they must have feared the worst, and it must have been a terrible time for them. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a turbulent time for them. Um, 
nobody really knew what was going on and there was a lot of uncertainty in the early uh, time period. So what kind of impact do you think it, it had on them? I mean, looking back, I mean, you're older now. How do you think it affected them at the time? It definitely had a massive impact in with my immediate family, both my parents and my brothers and sisters. Uh, whenever I was admitted to the hospital, one of my parents would have stayed with me and the other parent would have stayed with my, my siblings. Um, and they would normally take it in turns so that um, my siblings weren't going without too much attention. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was definitely a stressful time, but because of how regular and frequent my admissions were, um, it became quite a routine schedule. And exactly what symptoms have you experienced living with hyperpara? And, and have they changed over the, over the years? So when my calcium is low, my brain doesn't really work as well as it normally would. Um, I get confused about the silliest things and just end up dazed, staring at a wall sometimes. When it gets quite low, my, my muscles would seize up a bit intermittently, which can be quite painful. And w whenever this happens, I, I can't really do anything for a long period of time until my calcium is back to a normal level. I can't really think straight. I can't organize my thoughts. And which of those symptoms is the one that you find most difficult to live with and the most challenging? I definitely say that confusion is the most difficult. It's normally the first to come, um, even with slightly low levels. Um, it's unfortunately the most frequent symptom. It's very difficult to live an everyday life whenever you can't really organise your thoughts. And that must be super tough for you because you're a medicinal chemist. You know, you're working in a very highly stressed uh, environment that requires lots of brain power. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I need to be on my A game. And if I'm not, then it's really noticeable. So what was it like actually growing up with hyperpower? Because these symptoms must have been very apparent to your school friends. What memories do you have? I always had... Uh, uh, a low attendance in school and I was off pretty much part of every week uh, for sickness or sickness related hospital trips or checkups. It was quite difficult to stay on top of everything both academically and socially. Throughout school I always felt like I was just catching up. Um, I was never up to date and still figuring out what happened over the last couple of weeks rather than being on the ball like everyone else. But you've done remarkably well. I mean, despite you claiming constant catch-up state, actually, you've you've done very well indeed. You've just finished your your masters, and and now you're in work. How do your employers think that these complications should be handled? So, this job that I'm currently in is my first actual job, um, and from the get-go, on the first day, I was very upfront with my manager explained the whole situation and thankfully he's extremely understanding and he's he's aware that I would definitely rather be in work than than off sick so he's never really seen it as an issue to take a day off here and there. So how do you explain or when do you explain your condition to others? I mean is it different now from when you were younger? Yeah it has become a lot more dif difficult living with hypopara 
in my adult years compared to being a child. Um, especially whenever I have to go for treatment in the hospital. We had a great system whenever I was younger where the children's ward, um, we, we, we could just call them and they would try their best to arrange some treatment. Um, but now I have to go through a accident and emergency every time and it's just an ordeal every single time. So you were kind of a, a frequent flyer in the children's ward. Oh, you know? yeah. They all knew you and you knew them. Mm -hmm. But now I, I presume you're having to explain your condition every time and it's like starting all over again. Every single time, yeah. It's difficult. That must be really stressful for you. It gets quite repetitive after a while. You have a script in your head that you you know you just say in that situation, um, which is a good and bad thing, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it gets to the point where it would be helpful to even have a laminated card that you just be like, this is what you need to know right now. And even links or whatever to send send them in the right direction online. And you may be the only person that they will ever see in their doctor's lifetime with your particular condition. It's such a rare disease. Yeah, you, a lot of the times you feel like a, a case study. <laughs> <laughs> like something in-house and they're all yeah. getting everybody around they, to have They a always bring all the student doctors to see me. Fatim, I'm, I'm interested to know from your experience, if you see a difference in impact from those patients with non-surgical hyperpower to those who are post-surgical. Yes, there certainly is a big difference um, regarding the severity of the disease, but also very often the age of onset is very different. So post-surgical hypoparathyroidism, even though it may evolve over time and come years after surgery, usually it comes quite often, it comes directly after surgery. So we do have the event, we know what's coming and patients are usually well treated. For non-surgical hypoparathyroidism, it's often children, as we discussed earlier, have a long journey um, and usually have very committed pediatric services the problem then often is during early adulthood, often pediatric services continue to care for their patients because they know uh, they will have a harder time with adult care because often patients are not seen by the same doctor all the time. And this is a big problem. And there seems, from talking to quite a number of people, there seems to be a difference between the quality of life between non-surgical and post-surgical hyperpara. Yes, that's very interesting. So generally, quality of life is impaired in hypoparathyroidism. If you compare it to uh, standard populations, there is a big difference in almost all domains of quality of life. But it seems that post-surgical hypoparathyroidism does have a worse quality of life than non-surgical hypoparathyroidism, which I guess is because if you have non-surgical hypoparathyroidism, often you grew up with this disease and you don't know anything else. It's difficult, you have your troubles, but you don't know a different life than you have. For post-surgical, especially when hypoparathyroidism comes early after surgery and is severe, patients do remember how they felt before surgery. And then they have this stark comparison of the change they have after having this additional condition. It's really tough, isn't it? I mean, I wonder what you advise people who are newly diagnosed with hyperpara. You know, what's your top tip for them? Yes, I think the top tip is to 
to become your own advocate and to get as much possible information you can. So for someone who is newly diagnosed with hypopara, I would advise to get as much information as you can, to connect with patient groups, however you can, to get daily tips, to also inform your colleagues, your friends, your family, what this is about, and also to carry an emergency card, just having some basic information about the disease, and also talk about your healthcare providers about the disease, to have a, as much a normal life as you can. And women in particular need to be very careful about unplanned pregnancy because pregnancy needs to be something that's very carefully considered and very carefully monitored. Exactly. So sometimes patients have even been considered to not have children, which I think it's not fair to advise this. But of course, it's a high-risk pregnancy and the chronic hypoparathyroidism should be managed as stable as possible before a woman becomes pregnant. Interestingly, often hypoparathyroidism goes quite well during pregnancy because the placenta produces parathyroid-related hormone, uh, which takes over. And also during lactation, the the breast produces parathyroid-related hormones, so often it goes better. But if the balance, the calcium levels are not stable, it might lead to substantial morbidity in the child. And there we need a lot of interdisciplinary uh, care and regular checkups, not just every six months. Or That would be too, too few uh, checks during pregnancy. So in this uh, newly diagnosed uh, patient, mythical patient of ours, what does manage, day-to-day management of their condition look like? So usually we, we advise a certain dose of calcium supplements, a certain dose of vitamin D, a certain dose of active vitamin D. But sometimes unexplainably, calcium levels may be low, be high, or people may not feel well and they currently do not have the possibility to have a point-of-care calcium testing at home, which is a problem because in other comparable endocrine diseases, we now do have point-of-care measurement devices which have advanced the daily life for many of these patients greatly. Uh, So I really think this is something that will be necessary in the future. Also, life events or, or different daytime activity If you have a physical activity, a training session, uh, you may need more calcium during these days. Also, depending on what you eat. If you have a a day with a lot of dairy products, you might just not need as much calcium as you usually would. So these are people who are taking masses of uh, tablets uh, every day. Is there any long-term consequence or risk to taking this much calcium, for instance, uh, kidney stones? So there is a very substantial risk for renal morbidity in hypopara patients. So kidney stones, um, kidney calcifications, kidney failure, even dialysis. The risk is substantially elevated in hypoparathyroidism. And it is very likely that this has to do with overtreatment a little bit. Um, A part of it, I am sure, is the disease itself because parathyroid hormone does have its effects on calcium excretion. And if parathyroid hormone is absent or uh, missing, it's not physiological. And to give more and more calcium on the one side, you will always increase the calcium excretion in the kidney and therefore also increase the risk for kidney stones, kidney calcifications. 
And I want to t uh, turn away from the physical symptoms and risks to support and back to Connor again. Has there been someone throughout your life that's consistently supported you and your condition? I mean, you've already mentioned those fantastic people in the children's ward, but how about in your personal life? I'd, I'd definitely say my parents were instru instrumental in making sure I was okay with everything that was happening. Um, they'd listen to me complain, tell me to lighten up whenever I was being too hard on myself, uh, especially whenever I was younger. They, they made it feel like it wasn't that much of a big deal. I didn't really feel like it was as serious as looking back it probably was. But yeah, they, they've been there obviously from the start and they're still there now and I don't know what I would do without them. Well, Connie, you've reached the grand old age of 23 now. What was it like in terms of support out there early in your life compared with with now? Let's start with what it was like early on, I guess, for your parents. Yeah, well, I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed when I was three, which is 20 years ago now. So obviously the Internet has changed massively in that time. But 20 years ago... There wasn't as much available, and my parents, they possibly weren't looking in the right areas because they have no medical knowledge. They had to find patient support groups, the likes of that, patient stories, to really understand what the condition was, because they just didn't know. And I imagine they quickly became quite expert in your condition. It was like a full-time job, I suppose. <laughs> So are you part of a support group uh, community? Um, yeah, I am. I'm part of Hypopara UK, um, which is a charity, a patient-run charity um, for uh, people who have my illness. And there's branches all over the world, and it's a great way to see other people or to be aware of other people that are in a similar situation to you. It's very important because otherwise you you feel quite isolated and foreign. Yes, and it's that awareness that really that really counts. So I'm going to put you on the spot. If you're talking to somebody who's newly diagnosed with hyperpara, what piece of advice would you would you give them? Definitely research a lot about your condition and try to understand it as best you can, um, because it will make your life easier if if you can start that conversation. Uh, you definitely have to be your own advocate for your health. Which leads me on to my next question, which is how do you think the patient and doctor community could work together to help provide support, particularly for newly diagnosed patients? Um, I think it would definitely be helpful if there was a protocol put in place that when you're first diagnosed with, I suppose, any rare condition, it's mandatory for the doctor to point you in the direction of a patient support group. Um, that way you wouldn't really feel as isolated and alone with your new condition. Um, and presumably, actually, that helps with your mental health as, as, as well, because we, we think about all these physical symptoms you get from hyperpara, but actually the, the, the mental impact is something that needs dealing with as well. well definitely. Uh, that's one of the big issues that my family have experienced anyway. With a rare disease, because of the lack of awareness, you feel isolated. Um, and even hearing other people complain about the same stuff that you have going on, it does wonders for your mental health. It makes you feel not as 
uh, alone alone or different you know because um especially with the ultra rare uh, illnesses you have it in your head that this is the rarest thing ever it's only me um and it it, it really does wonders for your mental health knowing that there is other people out there in the same boat as you we had lots there about the information that you need for patients and their families. But I'm wondering, Professor Amrain, whether there's enough education and information about hyperpower for healthcare professionals. I think it's difficult for both sides. It's difficult for healthcare providers, but also for patients to get the right amount and the right quality of information. Things are improving, but there is still a lack of proper information. I find that Orphanet is a very good source of information. They have very good information on some forms of hyperparathyroidism that is very helpful for healthcare professionals as well. So if that's not a site you know, it's Orphanet, which is O-R-P-H-A dot net, and it's very good. So we've heard there about hyperpara as a rare disease and the diagnostic odyssey and difficulties that many patients take in order to get finally to a diagnosis. But I think what we've heard above all is how important support is, both for coping with the disease and for the support and uh, the, the mental and emotional support that you get from other people living with a condition. And uh, as Connor said so eloquently, it doesn't make you feel uh, alone uh, any longer, and like you're the one person who's just uh, odd and abnormal. So thank you very much to both of you, and look out for our next podcast in our Hyperpower Exchange series. Goodbye for now. <laughs> <laughs>